welcome to an all new recorded in-person episode of the three bid league podcast as always i'm tyler joined by my co-host matt and in the second half we got a terrific interview with one of the most fun players to watch in this league one of the candidates for the rookie of the year award gw forward darren buchanan jr and just a quick note before we get things started we actually recorded that before the weekend games uh, GW was actually off, so everything stays relevant, but there may have been one or two things mentioned that wouldn't make sense knowing what we know about the weekend games, so keep that in mind. But, Matt, those were some pretty eye-opening weekend games, and we have to start with what I have now discovered is actually definitively called the Capital City Classic. VCU beats Richmond again. Yeah, it just doesn't really seem to matter. You can throw the records out the door because Richmond on, what was it, their longest winning streak in about 90 years. But VCU, a team that struggled at home this year, got by far, I think, their greatest home environment of the season. And it was close at halftime, but really in the second half, the Rams left no doubt and just pulled away for the type of win that we knew they were capable of once they got fully healthy. Yeah, and for me now, about 24 hours removed from the game, the more I think about it, Richmond's really not going to get much better of an opportunity to go win in the Siegel Center than they had right now. It's now their sixth straight in that building. They moved to 2-9 and in the last 11 against the Rams overall. I'm not sure... I'm not sure which one of these teams by the end of the year is going to be better. Not a slight on Richmond. I still just believe VCU is better than their record. And if you told me right now that these are two of the three best teams in the league, I'd believe you. I really would. And But Richmond's just playing better ball right now. And I felt like they controlled the flow and the pace of that game for 30 minutes just really highlighted by the fact that VCU started 0 for 11 from deep after that cold streak to end the Bonnies game. Yeah. I mean, really, I think at one point VCU made four in a row in the second half and that was kind of just the dagger where Richmond couldn't recover from that. But I, I do think these teams are pretty even. I wouldn't say it's a bad loss for Richmond, although kind of with where they stand, they need every win they can get if they want to contend for an at-large. But I, I mean, I, I think it was more just, the positives of VCU in that second half rather than Richmond missing an opportunity. I I think VCU just knew they were in a battle and went out and took it from the Spiders. Look, it's not a bad loss by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think we ever believed for a second that Richmond was going to go 18 and 0 or even 17 and 1. They were going to drop two or three games in conference. They got the one that they had to have for their at-large hopes. So beyond that, like losing at VCU at-large resume-wise is not a bad loss in any shape or form. It's It just feels like a lost opportunity, a chance to really get a nice hit on, in on your arch rival. And you mentioned they make four out of the next five threes. It was Kawani Kawani who broke the streak. But then right after that, we're talking somewhere right in the eight, nine minutes to go range of the half. 
Max Shulga hits one the next possession down and then hit another one a few possessions later. And overall, in that moment, that was where VCU pulled away. And on a court with Jordan King and Neil Quinn, for the remainder of that game, Max Shulga was clearly the best player. And the moment he turned that from a Richmond favoring slog, possession by possession, into what became a you-have-to-make-your-shots kind of quasi-shootout, he became the best player in that game, and Richmond just couldn't match it. Well, I think that's the nice thing for VCU that we saw in this Richmond game is that they can have nights where a different player is their best guy on any given night. Like recently, it's been Joe Bamisil, but against Richmond, he went out and put up five points with four turnovers. Really wasn't a factor in the game. But at certain points, whether it was Kwani making that big three in the second half, he tied with Shulga for 15 points. I said Jackson only had seven, but he had six assists and no turnovers. Just an all-around strong triple nickel game for him. I feel like that's important for VCU where they don't heavily rely on one player in any given night. And they have three or four guys that can pop up and be one of the best players in the conference at any moment's notice. One of those guys, though, is Sean Bairstow who I felt like those first 30 minutes they desperately missed in the same way they did in the second half against St. Bonaventure. And it's it just is becoming very, very clear if he cannot find a way to stay healthy come March, they're not going to have a chance to win the A-10 tournament. I, I'm, I'm going to put that on the books right now. If they do not have Bearstow, they're flat out not going to the NCAA tournament. But if they do... This might be the most diverse offense in the league. And the guys on the black and gold fan pod mentioned a stat the other day. Every guy who plays some level of substantial minutes for the Rams has led them in scoring at some point in a game this year, except for Michael Bell. I felt like they really missed Barristow, especially in the second half of that St. Bonaventure game where the wheels just kind of fell off and when St. Bonaventure was going on their hot streak VCU didn't really have the offensive firepower to respond I mean it was almost a terrific week for VCU it's still impressive that first half going into the Riley Center but I think that game alone says a lot about how important his health is and just that they have all of these options at their disposal going into the tournament so the Richmond offense in this game, which once again in a in a big game struggled, and they were excellent defensively again. But VCU found a way to really disrupt Jordan King and Delani Hunt in this game. I think it had a lot to do with just that mega-sized backcourt that the Rams throw at you. All of a sudden, these smaller spider guards start to look even smaller than they normally do. But VCU kind of left Richmond with the Denver Nuggets problem in the second half where they decided that they were taking out their shooters. Really no one on the perimeter, save for Isaiah Bigelow made any important plays in that second half. But I, I pose this question to you. Should they have tried to push Neil Quinn to just cook in the post? Because there was a stretch in that second half where it felt like he was going to score every time he got the ball. And he he's such an unselfish player and it goes against the way that he wants to play. And it goes away against, it goes against the way that Mooney wants to play, but 
I feel like if he just decided that he was going to go for 30 points and play like Deron Holmes did the night before, that that was really the one path that Richmond had to winning that game. Yeah, I do think that is kind of an issue where Quinn is an outstanding player, but offensively, he had just one of his normal scoring games, at least four for 10 from the field, just got to the line one time for nine points. And that's really like his normal number of field goal attempts. He's never going to just take over a game shooting the ball and have those 25 point games. And when Richmond only shoots three for 18 from deep, it's going to be tougher for them to win when they just don't have quite as much of a post presence. And I think Quinn's value as a passer, while it's still crucial, doesn't hold quite as much weight when the Spires aren't making as many shots. Yeah, I, I think, well, well, it's going to be interesting to see because he's clearly not a guy who's comfortable with just trying to cook his man for 30 in a way that we see Holmes or Venning or Josh Cohen try to do. We'll see if other defenses challenge him to do that, though, as the season goes on. So speaking of cooking your opponent for 30, that's exactly what Deron Holmes did against St. Bonaventure. And now we find ourselves with a two-way tie back at the top of the standings, both Dayton and Richmond at 8-1. and The Spiders will still end the year with the tiebreaker because they won the only matchup between them and Dayton. I want to go back to Richmond, though. Just how does the VCU game change your outlook? I I do think it's important to note the schedule really softens up, and that's what I talked about at the beginning of the conference season. I just figured if the Spiders could go into this point at 5-4, and they had a great chance at a double bye. Right now, looking at the rest of the season, they won't be underdogs in a game probably until the last game of the season at George Mason. They've got a lot of nights where they should be in good shape. What do you think about their potential to still win this conference, either outright or in a tiebreaker? It's unchanged. Although I will say you need to go ahead and take care of business against VCU once they come down to, my God, why can't I, uh, the Robin Center. Because you're not going to win the league getting swept by your arch rival. Mm-hmm. because i mean there's just is there any chance that richmond's gonna actually go 16 and 0 the rest of the way against non-vcu teams that seems unreasonable for basically anybody and i think the way that dayton has been playing you're gonna need 16 to feel like you can win it outright you might even need 16 just simply to get into that tie well i, I think the important thing for richmond one of I believe just the two teams, them and Dayton, who have not lost at home this year. So they still get VCU at home again. They get St. Joe's, Davidson, UMass. So a couple challenging games where, to this point in the season, they have held their own and come out on top of all of these games at the Robin Center. The other team I just want to bring up, since we're having that discussion of teams behind, like we already mentioned VCU, but St. Bonaventure... Fought Dayton pretty hard on Friday night on ESPN2. Actually, we're leading at halftime. They're still the second best team in the net rankings in the Atlantic 10. I think they were already ahead of Richmond before the game this week. They were. They're sitting at four and five, though. Feel like they've lost a couple that they should have won. It's going to be an uphill climb for St. Bonaventure to get that double bye, but what did their 
both the big comeback win against VCU and fighting Dayton down to the last TV timeout. I, I feel like this was an encouraging week for the Bonnies. They're still in the upper echelon of the league on, hey, in any given night, can this team win against, say, like a Dayton or a Richmond with VCU, with St. Joe's, just because of the raw talent. But one of the really eye-opening things that has become clear to me in these last few St. Bonaventure games, because this team still just continues to not get to the foul line, And for them to play good offense, they have to shoot well from deep. And it's just become really clear in conference play that they don't determine whether or not that's going to happen on a given night. The opportunities that they're getting are completely dictated by the level that the opposing defense is playing at. And whether or not they can get that third, fourth pass to a wide open Banks or Flowers or Awesome Vu for a corner three. And you saw it against Fordham, against Dayton, against Duquesne, that they shut off those looks. And so all of a sudden, once that happens, you're really forced to just hope that Adams, Woods, or Venning can score in isolation. They won the two VCU games because of that. VCU shut off the shooters. And in the first game, Venning destroyed them one-on-one. And in the second game, in those last 10 minutes, Adams, Woods destroyed them one-on-one. But they're not going to be able to do that any given night. They need to have like a St. Joe's type game where the Hawks were just so, so bad on those secondary rotations. And I'm watching the second half of that game just pained as someone who understands basketball to see that every possession, either Daryl Banks or Moses Flowers was wide open in the corners. Wide open. Those were some of the easiest shots those two are ever going to get. And to their credit, they made basically all of them. But St. Joe's was just losing those guys constantly. And when it gets to March and St. Bonaventure's against one of the best defenses in this league, a Dayton or a Richmond, and they're locked in, I have a hard time seeing the Bonnies being able to put up more than 60-65 on that night. Kind of felt like in that Dayton game, really, it was almost as an impressive performance as you could hope for going at UD arena. Uh, we were just talking about offline Dayton's up to number two in defensive efficiency, just with conference only stats. So the flyers have been great on that end and really feel like that was the type of game that St. Bonaventure would have won eight out of 10 nights if they just didn't have to play against Duran Holmes. I mean, the, the two centers used up all 10 of their fouls and, Holmes just was not going to be denied in the second half. I, I feel like really if if Dayton didn't get that type of game from their best player, it could have been a much different situation. So before we focus in on Holmes, I do just want to note one thing. Because I, I was kind of going back and forth on this with every media timeout passing through on that game. And we were in the building in UD Arena. It was as great of an environment as you would expect for that thrilling of a game. But every break I'm left there to kind of ponder my thoughts between, was this a bad game for Dayton where they kind of dropped to the level of a good team that just played like an A minus B plus game? Or do we look at it the other way that just like the Duquesne game, that was the, shooting from hell everything kind of goes 
everything kind of normalizes itself out in the average for the season where Holmes makes one three, Cheeks makes one three in the first half. Their shooters make one the entire game. Just a deep one from Kobe Brea. And so they shoot like utter garbage against a quality team and they still beat them. So it's kind of the glass half full, glass half empty. And the more I think about it, I think that's where I'm landing. That you had an awful shooting night where you probably should have lost like eight times out of 10. And between Holmes and the def- and the perimeter defense, Dayton willed their way through it. No, I mean, I think that's kind of what has separated Dayton from St. Joe's this year. If we want to bring up another team, just two teams that heavily rely on threes. But I think St. Joe's, is, as, we's, as we've seen, they've lost some really bad games because when they haven't made threes, they don't have another way to win. Dayton can, and most of that has to do with Deron Holmes. But overall, just it was an efficient night for the Flyers, even when the threes weren't going in. They only turned the ball over six times. They were valuing the basketball, and it definitely helps when you have the best player in the court. But I, I think I agree with you that I'd see it as more of an encouraging sign that a team that has won most of their big games all year by making a lot of threes, they were able to still come out on top despite having a bad night there. Yeah, and let's flip it to the most important thing. Holy God. I I was laughing. I was legitimately sitting in my seat laughing in those final two, three minutes. It, it was it was like peak Shaq. The only way that Deron Holmes was not scoring on a possession at the end of that game is if Bonaventure somehow found a way to prevent the pass from getting into his hands. And other than that, he was so physically imposing on those non-centers that were having to guard him after Brown and Vennings both fouled out. And just so quick on his first move that Venning and Brown couldn't hang with him. That dude could have had 60 if he just called for the ball every possession that game. I, the second half, they just couldn't stop him. He would have scored every possession if he wanted to. And I think we need to compliment him on the kind of unheralded huge growth in his game, which is that he is now an awesome, reliable free throw shooter. Well, yeah, he went 13 for 17 and as a guy that gets to the line as much as anyone in the conference, that's a big advantage. He, he's had a couple nights where he struggled and it's brought down his overall percentage, which isn't great. But yeah, when he gets in that rhythm, he's been pretty good down the stretch of games. I think really my biggest takeaway from Deron Holmes this week, which is surely going to be another A-10 co-player of the week that he'll share with somebody, but I'm just even more impressed by Richmond shutting him down. I, that's what the rest of Dayton's opponents are going to need to study up on because really the one game Dayton had the most trouble with was when Holmes couldn't get going and the Spires took him out of that game. Yeah, well, I I talked to Coach Mooney about that last week and if anyone has not listened to our last episode with Richmond coach Chris Mooney, you absolutely need to. Uh, he was one of the best we've ever had on the show, gave some great insights into the spider season, but We talked about what Richmond does with trying to prevent dribble penetration, leaving Quinn waiting at the rim. And it turned into Deron Holmes trying to become a three point shooter in that game. 
that's why he struggled. If he's going to get one-on-one in the post against anybody, save for, I don't know, maybe Zach Eady in the entire country, he's going to find a way to score. You got to keep the ball out of his hands and keep his body out of the paint. The Spiders did that, and no one else has really been able to. So Dayton, clearly, I, I think we can say they recovered from losing to Richmond. Still look like they probably have the best chance to take home the one seed in this conference. But a couple of other teams at the top, I, I think we need to spend a few minutes on. I feel like it's just sort of snuck up on us that Loyola Chicago is 7-2 and two in the league after beating Davidson. And this was a team that I especially didn't believe in going into January. I think you had a little bit more confidence, but still, it wasn't a tremendous non-conference for the Ramblers. All of a sudden, they've really been winning the games they were supposed to. Their two losses are against Richmond and VCU. So how do we feel about their chances? At this point, it seems like a double buy spot is theirs to lose. They haven't snuck up. I've I've kept myself skeptical with my eye on them these last few weeks to see if they blew a game like, say, to Davidson at home where – a great second half from them right before we recorded this here today. But no, they have fended off the collapse. They have not had the UIC game, the New Orleans game, those awful performances that they were putting together in November and December and have even done so over a week. Now, granted, it was against St. Louis and Davidson. Couldn't really ask for much of a, a better opportunity to not have your best player in Jaden Dawson than those two games, but the Ramblers looked completely comfortable without him both times out there. And we just, we have to erase November now. They're just so much of a better team. And I, we talked about this off air a little bit, like where do they end up? I'm still just not sure that I'm sold on them as, a team that could actually put together a run in Brooklyn versus some of the teams below them in the standings. I think at some point we're going to, there's going to be a moment where we realize, Oh, they're a little bit closer to like six or seven than they are to the top two. But I'm not sure that moment's going to be more than some sort of bad, like two game losing streak or, a rough performance in the A-10 tournament. I th- I think they're f- firmly in the double buy race to stay. And thanks to that great start, they really have earned their way into probably being the third most likely team to finish up there. Yeah, I, I think the argument against Loyola is that besides winning at Hawk Hill, they really haven't won a game in the conference. They weren't supposed to, but it is just so important that they're not blowing these games. I mean... A couple months ago, if we looked at the schedule and said in a, a two-week span, they're going to be playing at Fordham and home against St. Louis, like it would seem likely they'd lose one of those games, and they haven't done that. It is kind of the opposite situation of Richmond, where the Ramblers have most of their difficult games ahead of them. So I, I think the next few weeks will be telling. Uh, just this week, they go at George Mason. They still host Dayton and go at St. Bonaventure, so... Those three games in particular, I think, will determine a lot of Loyola's chances to win the conference tournament. 
they've shown they can play the good teams in the league close, but they still don't really have that signature win where I just can't confidently say, like, on a given night, if they could go out and beat Dayton or Richmond on a neutral court. Well, at the same time, I think we need to just keep in mind the way everything's so jammed in the middle. Five and four, just simply going above 500 from here on out is going to deliver them a double buy. And four and five might be enough in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, if you just want a, a picture of how tight the middle of the pack is right now, Ken Palm, Scott Loyola, and VCU projected at 11 and 7, which would be good for third and fourth place. I mean, that, yeah, I would say five wins definitely. If Loyola gets to 12, they're definitely going to get to rest until Thursday of the tournament week. And in a year where I would say there's probably seven or eight semi legitimate contenders, I think only having to play three games would be a pretty big advantage because your first game of the tournament isn't going to be a pushover if you're a double buy team. Oh, yeah. Well, I said this two weeks ago. This double buy is even more important than normal. Do you really want to have to go play, I don't know, Fordham, Rhode Island, Davidson in, say, like a 5-12 or a 6-11 game? If you truly believe that you're good enough to win this conference tournament, you should have no problem dispatching one of those teams. But my mind goes back to the 6-11 game two years ago where late in the first half, it looks like Richmond is just going to get run over by a Rhode Island team that, quite frankly, was worse than just about every team in the conference right now. This ended up being David Cox's last game as the coach there. And it looked like they were going to end the Gilliard Golden era. And all of a sudden, Richmond just figures it out in the second half and they make that run. Someone who comes out of the pillow fight this year, essentially sliding into that 10, 11, 12 seed spot, one of those teams is winning their second round game. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I kind of think that Richmond team was almost the exception to the rule where they really played four stressful games that week and I I feel like that was kind of an advantage last year for VCU over Dayton like the Rams just kind of cruised in their first two rounds where Dayton had to grind against St. Joe's and Fordham I think just avoiding as many tension-filled moments as you can the the leading games of the tournament that helps out a lot but uh I did notice you said you wouldn't want to play Fordham Rhode Island or Davidson first uh there were two teams you excluded are we saying St. Louis versus LaSalle on Wednesday is the game of the year of the century? Because these teams are really struggling right now. I thought this was going to be an attack for me, assuming that Duquesne is going to fu- is going to play their way into hey, the seven eight nine the, range. The at this longest point. winning streak in the conference right now. I, we haven't brought that up, but yeah, and they finally actually scored points again against Rhode Island. Day uh, Day Grant is back and finally looking like that concussion has has fully cleared him. 31 points, unbelievable game. Duquesne with a really good chance to now beat Davidson at home to close out the first half four and five on Wednesday. But yeah, the more I look at it, it's it's starting to feel like St. Louis LaSalle might be the bottom two teams. And I, I hesitate to say that about LaSalle because of Brantley, Brickus, and Dunphy, but they're just not playing well right now. As for St. Louis... 
do we have any doubt at this point that they're the worst team in this league? I, I don't think so. I mean, they were already struggling. I think what do you think Tim Dolger just he wasn't producing a ton, but now they're just even smaller and really I mean LaSalle's kind of the one team that won't bully them down low. So maybe that's a game they have a better chance than most nights. But yeah, I mean it just what's going on off the court right now too, it's clearly not a a, a fun locker room and the fans aren't really happy. So yeah, I, I would say I don't think we can really put Rhode Island in this discussion when they've won four conference games either is the main issue. Yeah, and Gibson Jimerson, who's having the worst three-point shooting season of his entire career at 37%, as he is just stuck in a terrible offense, like that's a guy who now disappears on certain nights. And I feel like the only two guys on this team that I fully believe are going to produce on any given night you're going to get Terrence Hargrove's normal gritty play and rebounding and Brad Ejiwiro, who if they hadn't gotten him off of the two-time transfer ruling, they would really be awful. That dude's a beast, but we now come out of a week where they lose to Loyola. They lose a very, very, very winnable game at home to Fordham that was certainly there for the taking in the final few minutes. And this comes after their giant, lengthy locker room meeting from a week ago. And when you start to look for the vibes and you're looking at where a team's headed, when you hear about that brutal meeting where players are willing to go out and talk about it, and then you immediately go and play two duds, it's just over. And I think for those, for those gamblers out there, there's going to be a nice little opportunity. St. Louis had no business whatsoever being favored against Fordham the other day. They have no business being favored against anyone in this conference at home, at home or on the road at this point. And I think so long as the books continue to treat them like the mediocre team that beat Wyoming, that gave NC State a competitive game, and not the one that has just looked atrocious the last few weeks, there's going to be a chance to make some money betting against the Billikens. Well, I think at this point, it's looking like the only game or the game St. Louis will have the best chances home against GW, which is basically a coin flip analytically. The analytics also still hate GW compared to what they actually perform at. Save, save for uh, the last three games. Yeah, kind of interested. So GW, we haven't spent much time on the last few weeks. They've actually... They went through the toughest stretch of their season, probably having to go on the road at UMass, Richmond, and Dayton in the last two weeks. But they've lost four in a row. Really, I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like we can take their evolutionaries out of any sort of dark horse consideration. Where after that initial VCU game, it looked like maybe they could just have the fight to beat anyone in the conference, but. I don't know. They just didn't really compete very closely in any of those three difficult games with a home loss to LaSalle in the middle of all that. Okay, so I, I, I want to close this out real quick by actually expanding on that discussion. Because we had so much chaos to start the conference season. And you, you can look back to certain games and just officially say, oh, these definitely did not make sense. 
And funny enough, it was all those ones from the first week that kind of didn't make sense in the moment, which was St. Joe's losing to both Rhode Island and SLU, and then Rhode Island getting their only win outside the Ryan Center of the entire season at Davidson. Like the other ones, like Duquesne losing at UMass at Loyola, all of a sudden just kind of makes sense now. Those two teams are both just better than we thought they were at the beginning of January. But going forward, this is where I think I'm at with the tiers. I want to hear your commentary on it. Title contenders, Dayton is like a 1A in this group and Richmond's a 1B. Your double by contenders, Loyola, VCU, St. Bonaventure, St. Joe's, and George Mason. The kind of middle of the pack teams, Duquesne, GW, and I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out if if Davidson belongs. Oh, we haven't said yeah. UMass yet, have we? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, UMass is in the. I knew I was forgetting somebody. UMass is in that second tier, competing for a double buy. So that third tier, I'd say Duquesne, GW, and Fordham both to a lesser extent belong there. Who the hell did I just say with them? I'm, I'm, I did not write this down. Um, Good radio right here. While you, while you think. Yeah, it's that, spectacular. I, I want to, I want to expand on one thing though. I, I'm not sure I agree with George Mason and the double by contenders. And maybe that's just my instant reaction to what was a truly heartbreaking week where the Patriots go on the road to St. Joe's and UMass lose the two games by a combined three points. Really both were there for the taking. I mean, of course, the the UMass game is as unfortunate of a loss as you'll see with an untimely intentional foul at the buzzer, basically. But I don't know. It's just the last, really throughout this conference season, I haven't felt confident in the Patriots closing out these games that go right down to the wire. And I just feel like sitting at four and five, they've kind of left themselves too big of a hole to climb out of. Yeah, I mean... uh... The offensive production from the guards, which I've harped on over and over again now as being what kind of dictates whether or not they win, it continues to be an issue. And they've tried to address it. Now, all of a sudden, Baraka Okoje is playing some huge minutes. He's kind of taken Ronald Blight's spot. Just any best case scenario for this team involves polite finding himself at 80% of what he was last February. And maybe that's just, maybe it's just not coming at this point. We saw the bursts. We saw the performances in December that pointed towards it maybe coming back, but January was another rough month for him. And relying on a Koji who's been, who was awesome the last three games for them, but he is a freshman he has not proven that he can put it together game after game. And all right, I have my tears now. All right. Let's so hear them. title contenders, Dayton followed with a small gap by Richmond. Your double by teams, Loyola sitting up there in the pole position already. And then kind of the, the talent base of the league with VCU, St. Joe's, St. Bonaventure, UMass, And I would put Mason at the bottom of that group right now. So if they all finish where we're saying that's eight right now, you got one more buy left. 
competing for that Duquesne in the pool position at this point, but GW hanging around and then to a lesser extent Fordham. Then you have kind of the, the look like they're headed for the pillow fight tier with Davidson LaSalle and I'm sorry, Rhode Island, you just continue to play too many dud games for me to believe. And then you have the, hey, we are this year's old-style Fordham team with St. Louis. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I The one thing I would just add, if there was a team to join Dayton and Richmond in that top tier, I think it's pretty clearly VCU. Even though I don't feel great about saying that when St. Bonaventure just swept them this week, but I, the Bonnies have lost too many bad games, and VCU just feels like they're more trending upward right now. I just can't put them there for the regular season. No, not yet. I, I think that two-game gap is just kind of unreachable, although yeah. they do still play Dayton twice. And if they can find a way to sweep the Flyers, then this is very much in play, but if there's ever a Dayton team where they're just too good for it to be completely inexcusable to not at least split with the Rams, it's this year right now. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that is more title contender for the tournament. I, I don't really think the Rams can get there because they're not going to run the table at this point. And even if they did run the table, I don't, that, that might be enough. I guess it would be two wins over Dayton. So it probably would be enough, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, because they would just need Richmond to lose one more time, and then they'd be 4-0 in any kind of triple tiebreaker. Well, the last thing I have to say really about this last week, I just want to congratulate Elijah Gray on getting the all-fun team bump with his game winner against St. Louis. What a what a tremendous shot and what ended up being a pretty entertaining game, surprisingly. Wait, Enoch Cheeks just played the best offensive game of his entire season on Friday night after... He also got drafted to the all-fun team. We don't know everything, but we know just a little bit. And that things like that makes me feel good when it comes to fruition. Yeah, and Cheeks also had probably the most vicious dunk of his entire season that night, too. So he was just a delight in that game. Very happy to have gotten him onto my all-fun team. But... One of the other guys I selected for that team, GW rookie forward, Darren Buchanan Jr. And if you have forgotten by this point, got a great interview coming up with him next. Uh, A very intelligent player on the court and a guy who was very open with his interview answers, a guy who gave gave me a great 20 minutes here. You are going to really enjoy it. But Matt, anything else before we pass it off to Darren? No, I don't think so. I I think everyone at this point wants to hear him. So I I got nothing. All right. uh, We'll pass it along. Just a quick aside. If you're listening to this, please reach out to us either in email three bid league at gmail.com or on Twitter at the number three bid league pod. Give us a comment about the audio quality of this episode. As I mentioned, we are recording this in person. Something that we tend to do a little bit more frequently as we get deep in the season. And we don't quite have the ability to use up all of our normal equipment. We're not professionals here trying out something new today. So we'd be interested to know if the audio is coming through good or not. So please let us know. 
if it sucks, we've had and we've had some bad ones before, then we'll be trying something else for our next time later in the season. All right. Here is Darren Buchanan Jr. of the George Washington Revolutionaries. All right. I'm now joined by a very special guest, one of the best rookies in this league. GW forward, Darren Buchanan Jr. Darren, thank you for joining me. No problem. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> so let's just start things off here. Go back to last offseason. You went to Virginia Tech for a year, redshirted, yeah. and then you decided to go to GW, who was one of your original finalists coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. What was it that made you choose to <clears throat> come back home this time around? Um. So when I entered the transfer portal, I um, – I didn't know where, like, what to expect or where I was going right away. I didn't know, like, anything. But um, I had came home probably three days after I entered the portal. And uh, I met my grandma, told her what was going on. She was like, well, I want you to come home. I want you to go to school close to home. So I was like, all right, home, that's 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 a big factor. And um, I started to grow a relationship with Coach Caputo and the staff here at GW. And um, it just seemed like a perfect fit. I seen the growth that he he turned the program around year one. Uh, with me being from D.C., I seen how it was before he got there. And um, to see what he did in year one and didn't have guys that I'm, I'm very close with, like Ricky Lindo, have a career season, like career highs and pretty much almost everything. Um, it's pretty evident that his, his player development was there. And that um his plan that he was gonna have out for me was gonna be up to par and, and what I needed for my success. So um it was a no-brainer. Um I kind of stalled Coach Caputo for so long. I knew I was going to GW all along. I waited so long to tell him. But um I ended up telling him two days before I took my visit, and um it's been great ever since. Yeah, and it's funny enough that you're friends with Ricky Lindo. You essentially replaced him, took his spot in the lineup <laughs> as he left GW, but but one of the rare things about this team, you just don't see a ton of guys redshirting as freshmen anymore. And you have yeah. three of them together in your starting lineup, yourself, Garrett Johnson, Maximus Edwards, and then Benny Schroeder off the bench as well. All guys who redshirted as freshmen and then came to GW. How do you feel like you were different this year going into this season? Were you just way more prepared than when you walked onto Virginia Tech's campus? Um, I definitely feel way more prepared when I when I got down here at GW. But as far as with me, I'm still 19, so it was still like a, a total like shift for me coming from um the ACC level then back home where I'm close to the family, close to the friends, and uh, I actually planned this year. So it took me a while to get my foot in, but in, in terms of like the strength conditioning and things like that, um, I was pretty pretty much used to that. But I just had to adapt to a new way of just getting after with uh, Coach Handy and stuff like that. So um, it was a smooth transition, I'll say. But I definitely feel like I was more prepared being as though that I really showed in my uh, freshman year. So you have an incredibly unique game. That's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to talk to you here today. And for people who are fans of other teams who maybe haven't played GW yet, haven't seen you, can you describe your game like as if a scout asked you to try to give a sales pitch to him? Um, I describe my game as a as a player who want to win, uh, who's going to do anything to win. Um, use his body to get downhill, draw a lot of fouls. Um, great for for his teammates, and most importantly, have high intensity on the defensive end. 
and rebound the ball well. And um, just just a just a high high motor player who hate to lose. So, so what position did you mostly play offensively back in high school? In high school, I don't know to be honest. I played point guard. I played center. I played small four. I played pretty much everything. Um, AAU, I played center. I definitely played center AAU. Uh, then high school, my senior year, I played point guard. I played center. I played everything. So it it was kind of just getting in where I, where I fit in with whoever was on the court with me at the time. So. So that fits what I've watched this season. And <laughs> the first month of the year, I think I described you as a guy who was trying to be a power forward in the 1970s, who then hopped into a time machine and popped out in 2024 with your post-up game is a, a guy at your size and quickness really just doesn't go into the post very often anymore. And you leaned on that heavily earlier in the year. Now you're starting to do a lot of dribble attacking. You're starting to shoot the three more and it's, it's this really interesting hybrid offensive game. Yeah. Uh, when I stepped on campus, Coach Caputo said, yeah, I want you to play a little bit of the five. I'm like, the five? At the college level? Like, how how's how that going to work? Like, I'm only six, seven. But um, we watched a lot of film. Like, uh, guys like Draymond Green, um, 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 Sabonis. We watched a lot of film of uh, guys who, who were, like, playmakers out of the five. He was like, I think you can be that for us. So I started y'all playing a five, come off the bench, and then as the season started going on, he he started putting me in more ball screens, like where I'm handling, where I'm setting it. So we we definitely started to use like every aspect of my game, and um, it's, it's just showing now. So who is it that you want to try to emulate? Whether a current player, maybe a former player, just a guy that you love to go watch those highlights of and try to take things out of their game. Um, I mean, of course, I I love LeBron, but. I'm kind of big on like the the younger generation now in the NBA, so I like I love to watch Scotty Barnes. Um, he's a six eight like point guard, kind of like a big guard. How how I view myself as, um, I love Anthony Edwards. How he just attacks the game. Um, his defensive intensity. Um, who else? I, I watch a lot of Kobe. I still watch a lot of Kobe to this day. To this day, I still watch a lot of Kobe. Um, let me see. I love Julius Randle. Julius Randle. I've been I've been watching him uh, a little a little more uh, often. Um, I actually met him. They had practice here at GW one day, and I got to take a picture with him. So that that was cool. But those guys are kind of the guys I, I watch a lot of, just to try to get like little pointers from them. So two two things that you said there set off kind of alarm bells in my head. The first one, Julius Randle, is a great offensive comparison. That's another guy who maybe not quite the size of a traditional like bruiser big guy, but someone who will just beat up people in the post while also having a perimeter game to what he does too. The other one being Anthony Edwards from an intensity standpoint, almost kind of a sometimes reckless intensity. Because <laughs> when you have the ball in your hands, you are attacking people. Yeah. Coach Coach Caputo say he wants me to play with a lot of force, so I, I I've been just listening to him and doing doing what he told me to do. So. so we'll flip it to the other side of the court. 
you play kind of all over the place defensively. Like you said, Coach Caputo wants you to be a five. Sometimes when Stretch Akingbola is out of the game, you got to take on that role. You and Garrett Johnson also share some defensive assignments. You can interchange amongst different size forwards. What's the type of guy that you feel like you're best at guarding, being able to shut them down? Um, me personally, I think guys that like to that just dribble, like I think I move my feet pretty well to stay in front of them, and uh, I just like taking out the best player of each team, like just taking them out the game. Like once you do that, I feel I feel like there's you took the other team's will. Like there's nothing you got to make somebody else beat beat you. So, um, I feel like I like. I like guarding in the post, like bigger defenders. Um, but I think I think where I'm best at is on the perimeter. I think I'm a good, a, a really good perimeter defender. So not quite not quite preferring to battle with the centers. No. Nah, you will if you really. have to. <laughs> so I do want to talk about your other fellow freshman on the wing, Garrett yeah. Johnson, a, a guy who's gotten a lot of rightful publicity this season for his journey. But he also is just a fantastic player, a great shooter, a guy who does a, a lot of things you would typically see out of a stretch four. You're kind of taking up the power forward spots. Just how does how do the game between you two fit together? Um, if it's if it's well, um, we realized that in the summer when we were um, competing against each other, and it was times with me and him on the same team, we won't lose. And I was just like, it, it's going to be that way when the season starts, and. Um, just like with me being a driver and him being a shooter, like, and I'm a playmaker. So when I drive and I see him open, I'm gonna give him the ball. I tell him that all the time. Like every time I get the ball, I tell him be hands ready because you like you never know when I'm when I'm going to come hit you. So, um, he's a great player. I love playing with Garrett. Um, everybody knows his story. His story is like unbelievable to see his growth to where he is now. It's crazy and um, like he's he's just a great great player. Uh, he can shoot, drive. He's very athletic. People don't even know that he's very athletic. Um, he he we ain't gonna talk about it. But he caught me a few times at practice, but uh, nah, I love playing with Garrett, and uh, I think we play pretty well off each other, and um, it's gonna be good to watch for the next couple years. All right, so let's say tomorrow morning you guys are out on the practice court. Coach rules the ball out, says, "Hey, Darren Garrett, you're going to eleven. Who's winning that one on one game?" I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna say me because I don't like to lose, man. I don't like to lose. It's gonna. It's probably gonna be. I'm gonna say me. 11, 11, 10, 11, 9, probably. But then if it's a good day, Garrett might get me because he could shoot the cover off the ball, man. So I don't know. I don't know. This is this is an inexplicably loaded rookie season across the conference. There's like seven guys who could legitimately win rookie of the year at this point, but it may come down to you and Garrett. It might you guys might have to actually just yeah, we, each other one on one at some point for the award. We 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 roommates on a roll, and that's all we like. We just be asking like, bro, who gonna win it? I'm like, oh no. I mean, I'll be happy for him though. I already told him like he wins. I'm gonna be so happy for him because he he deserves it. I mean, his, like I said, his story is, is like you know you never really see something like like him like his story. So I told him he deserved it. So I'll be happy for him for either one of us either way it goes. But it has to be one of us. I don't. I don't think any other rookie or what we're doing. Are you ever stat tracking any of the other guys just to kind of see, like, oh, oh, this guy's coming for us. Like, this might be a three man race now. 
Nah, not really. Not really. Because any, like, it's either, like, I always see a post, he work it a week of me. Like, I don't really be seeing the other ones. So, like, when you said seven guys, I was only thinking it was us two. I didn't know who the other five were. So, it's if I had to bet right now, I would say it's probably one of you two or Xavier Brown at St. Joe's. Okay, I know he's, he's, he's good. the he's one good guy who could come for who could come for it, but no, he's good. He's good. I like his game. Yeah, and it would be if one of you two wins this, it would be a back to back after Maximus Edwards took the award last year. Is there something Coach Caputo sees that he keeps going to you, you redshirt guys? I mean, I have, I, I don't know, but it's it's crazy because. When we when we first got here, um, me and Garrett was talking. It was like, nah, that's pretty. Like, we gotta keep the award here some way somehow. And uh, to see like it's it's planning out that way, it, it's pretty good. And um, we actually um, he's registering this year. Kristen Jones, he's gonna have a good chance of winning it next year. So it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, and you guys are. It it doesn't seem that way because you have two older guys at James Bishop, Stretch Akingbola, but you're a super young team. The two yeah. of you, Maximus Edwards, Jacoy Hutchison, Trey Autry, uh, Benny Schroeder, all these dudes. You Hopefully you'll all be back with the team next year, but you're going to be losing your two, your two elder statesmen on the team. So out of this young player group, who, who's kind of the leader? Who's, who's the guy that you feel like could step up, be the voice of the group next season? Um, honestly, I think it would be me. Um, I feel like I'm already that vocal leader on the team, but I feel like all of us will step up because we all know what's at stake, especially with them two leaving. We got big shoes to fill, especially with JB, him being a GW legend, top five in scoring. So we know like what's at stake and what we got to do to get back to how we – how we know we, we got to play with them two being gone. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a tough adjustment, definitely losing JB and Stretch. But um, I don't. I think everyone that's going to be in that locker room next year is going to be ready for it. So. Do you guys ever put any thought towards next season? Like, oh, man, we everybody a year older, a little bit better? Like, just imagine what you guys could do. Um, We talked about it a few times, but not really because we're still trying to, you know, finish up this season strong and, and try to make a run in the postseason. But we haven't really thought about it. But I know in the back of our heads that we all know, like, we stay together. We got a chance to do something really special here at GW. So so I do have to pass it on to a, a not quite as fun note. Right now as we're recording, you guys are on essentially a little bye week. You don't play it all this weekend, but you're on a four-game losing streak. Yeah. And like I just said, a lot of young guys who haven't experienced something like that, I mean, Hell, Coach Caputo hasn't even experienced a four-game losing streak as a head coach to this point. It's it's really just James Bishop in his younger years. So what what's the mood like, like in the locker room? What are you guys looking to do to try to get yourselves back on track against Rhode Island? Um, watch a lot of film. Um, we know within the four games that we lost that, like, all of them were in, in, in reach of winning for sure, and uh, that we just made – too many mistakes that we we can't have. So um, just watch a lot of a film, get back in the gym, um, practice harder, and then just stay together. That's the biggest thing. Um, I was at Virginia Tech, and uh, we were going down there. We went through like a six-game losing streak or whatever. But to see how that locker room still stayed together 
and uh, we we turned down and got a couple more wins towards the end of the season. So I was just telling them guys here, like, I mean, it, it's like we hate we all hate to lose, but we're in a position we put ourselves there. So now let's let's stick us together and get ourselves out this position. So um, I think we all got got good energy, good positive energy moving forward, and uh, definitely gonna make that bounce back on Tuesday against Rhode Island. Yeah, and if there's one thing we've learned in about a year and three quarters now, Chris Caputo at the helm at GW, it's that when this team struggles, they don't tend to do so for long. So certainly would expect to see a bounce back in this next week. But yeah. I, I do want to ask you about a performance specifically in one of your losses earlier this season, the absolutely, completely nuts triple overtime game against Fordham, where you put up 38 points, on 15 of 30 shooting, six rebounds, four steals. And in overtime, it basically just seemed like if you got the ball one-on-one in the post, you were scoring every time. Can you just kind of take us back to that game? Like, what do you think it is these overtimes are going on? Did you feel like anyone could stop you at that point? Um, Going into the game, we knew that they was going to play this little weird defense. So, um. The day before, Coach Caputo just told me he he's a, expecting me to make a lot of plays. And um, as the game started, I just got I just got going early, and um, down the stretch, I just I just felt as if whoever was guarding me couldn't guard me. So um, I was just saying, whatever shot I can get, I'm going to take. And um, they were falling; they were good shots, but um, we just fell short three overtimes. And after the game, I was I was just telling them, like, bro, that's what college basketball is. Three overtimes, like, two hard-nosed teams competing, fighting out to lose the ball and stuff like that. But um, that game, that game was crazy. That game was crazy. I didn't, I didn't think I was gonna have thirty-eight points. Um, some of my friends were at the game. They was like, "We wanted you to get forty. You wanted to get 40. I'm like, "I, I don't know." But yeah, that was a crazy game. That was a, that was probably like, like one of my best, least favorite games. Like. I mean, yeah, I played good, but we lost. So I don't, I didn't really care about it, but yeah. It, it, there's a penchant for overtimes in that building. Last three seasons, GW has played 14 overtime periods in total. They've won or tied 13 of them. The only one that was dropped was that third overtime against Fordham. So that's, that's why people call it the Charles Entertainment Smith Center. <laughs> yeah, Coach Caputo's overtime record's pretty good, I think. Yeah, it's the it's the only one he's dropped. It's just that game. He won he won a few completely nuts ones last season too. So Yeah. So before we wrap it up, I do want to ask you, you're a DC guy. You come back, you come home to GW, that big rivalry with George Mason. How does how much does beating that team mean to you? What is that is that rivalry really a big thing in the locker room or is it something more so to the fans? Um I would say both. I would say both. Most of the fans and in the, and in the locker room. Um, my sophomore year, I went to the game where GW played Mason and just seeing the environment of the game. I didn't really know how big of the rivalry was until I actually got to be a part of it. And um, knowing that Coach Caputo started at George Mason and that he coached Tony Skin uh, for that Final Four team, so it was a lot of just like deep history that like between. Um, the rivalry now and um I think we all just wanted to go out there and win for GW that game and um we went out there and did that from the jump so yeah also an ex-Virginia Tech teammate of yours Darius Maddox on the other side 
Yeah, that's that's my guy. Uh, I love Darius. Um, we spent a lot of time together at Virginia Tech, like late nights, just in the gym, talking, shooting, um, hanging out together off the court. So, I, I, like Darius, I know him since he was in high school. Um, he played with Team Durant, and um, he he's he's kind of like a big brother to me. So, I, like I always respect him, love his game, but um, I I just glad he had an off night against us. So, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things that the transfer portal has brought out now, especially with guys migrating back to their hometowns, you yeah. get not only the AAU and high school connections, but now you get college connections too. It's it's like that for Jason Nelson down at VCU now. He'll be playing all of his old Richmond teammates this weekend. That should be a good game. That yeah, it, good. chance to uh, chance to potentially be one of the best games in the conference this year. So, so you certainly. You make that comment. You certainly know what else is going on in this conference. Is there is there any other teams or players that on an off night you like to flip on and watch? Um, my boy Eric at St. Joe's. I know him pretty well. Um, who else? And at eighteen, um, Delaney Hunt at Richmond. He's from the area. I know him. Uh. I like to watch Mason because, of course, Darius, um, Woody. I know a lot of those guys on that team pretty well. Mm. Other than that, I'm not going to say I don't hate the other teams, but they not my friends. I don't like them. Like, I don't like none of them. Um, yeah, that's just how that go right now. <laughs> hey, that's that's when basketball is at its best, when there's a little bit of animosity between yeah. the teams. We'll We'll close it out here. So you guys are in the locker room. Let's just say like it's uh, after practice on a random weekday. Who's getting the ox and what's going on there? Um, Trey Archer's getting the ox for sure. Trey's getting the ox. He got a he got a nice diversity of music. Um, I'll get a trade. I'll give Trey the ox like nine times out of ten for sure. Because it, it'll just be a great vibe with Trey. What what do you think he's putting on? What's what's the first song that's coming on on that playlist? First song he he he's putting at least like some Drake or like or like New York drill music, something that that's, that everybody knows. So that's why I say Trey. He put on music that everybody knows. All right, Trey Autry, man of the people in the locker room, sure. and Darren Buchanan, one of the most entertaining guys in this conference. If you haven't seen GW play this year, you got to. Five starters who are all just fun to watch this season, led by this guy. Darren, thank you for joining me today. No problem. Thank you.